there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. One of the great things about this work is that it moves you from one quandary to another. You start to see things about yourself, and then, of course, that opens a whole world of seeing things about the world and people. Once you begin to see reality, once you begin to see things as they are, you can't stop seeing things as they are. And once that happens, there are a lot of awakenings that occur. And that puts us in a quandary. Well, what do I do about this? When before you knew the reality of yourself or some part of yourself, you knew exactly what to do. Nothing. You just were yourself and you just did what you did. But then you become aware of some negative thing, negative eye in you or some mechanical behavior. And you become aware of it and you begin to observe it. And it can't operate in the light of consciousness as you're observing it. It can't operate. You find yourself being negative about something and you just stop being negative. You see the absurdity of it. You see the reality of it. And you stop it. So it can't operate. And it puts us in a quandary because then we have to know, well, what do we do now? This is interesting because when you start to do this work and you really begin to let it inside of you, you notice that the world is different. eHarmony claims that it has, in 2003 or 2001 or somewhere back there, it claimed to have 90 users per day who wed. That was 32,850 couples per year who got married. Now they claim 236 a day. 236 people a day who use eHarmony.com get married. There are 120,000 marriages per year estimated, all the combined online dating services. A client spends $239 per year for the service. In 2003, the industry raked in $214.3 million. The estimated take for 2008 is $642 million. The estimated projection is $900 million by 2011. This is growing at an incredible rate. Maurice Nicole said in 1947, figure to yourself two imaginary eyes marrying each other. The dream man marries the dream woman, and so on. All this, of course, can lead nowhere save in romance novels, which usually and wisely end just when the imaginary hero marries the imaginary heroine. Obviously, a difficult starting point, suggesting difficult situations in the future. But that's where the novel ends. And for those of you who have read romance novels and have been addicted to romance novels, and of course I'm looking at you, you know that they all stop there. They all stop at happily ever after. And the only way to keep it happily ever after is if there's no ever after, if the book ends right there. And all of the, the difficulties of a relationship are never dealt with. They're never faced. So eHarmony is a romance. It's, a, it's a, just a romance novel. And what they're saying is, look, 236 people a day get married. Now, I don't know whether that's 236 people means they're counting each couple twice or it's 236 couples. So since it's 236 people a day, my guess is, is it's, it's half that, actually, because those two people are a couple. But still, you know, it's good business to expand the numbers and make them look better because then we all go, oh, that's a better chance for me. 
The divorce rate in the United States is, depending on who you listen to and, and which statistic you look at, is between 41 and 50 percent for the first marriage. And for the second marriage, it's between 60 and 67 percent. For the third marriage, it's between 73 and 74 percent. So three-quarters of the people who get married for the third time get divorced. Between 60 and 67 percent of the people who get married the second time end up divorced. And the people who get married for the first time, between 41 and 50 percent end up divorced. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. Alexander Pope, 1733. It's interesting, this whole thing, you look at this, the people who get married for the third time with the divorce rate 73 to 74%, they were hopeful. I remember one time watching Mickey Rooney on TV and he was being interviewed on some talk show. This was a long time ago. And he had just gotten married for the fifth time and people were kind of scratching their heads. There's a lot of times to get married. He says, yeah, but can't you see that I really believe in marriage? I really, I really believe in marriage. And he, so his sales pitch was he got married for the fifth time because he really believed in marriage. And it, the truth is he didn't believe in marriage at all because if he had, he, he wouldn't have gotten divorced the first time. But he believed in hope. That's what he believed in. He really believed in hope. He didn't believe in marriage at all. He believed in hope. He believed that, well, maybe this time. Researchers found that there's a certain part of the brain, brain clusters, called the amygdala or something like that. Uh, you know, I, I'm not really good at these scientific names, but we'll call it the amygdala brain clusters, which help form and store emotional memories. And the rostral anterior cingulate, it's another set of brain clusters, another part of the brain. And these areas help regulate emotional responses. They're stimulated when people are optimistic. Optimism stimulates these brain clusters that help form and store emotional responses. They found that these same brain clusters, when they're not functioning properly, then what we have is depression. So on one hand, you have optimism. On the other hand, you have depression. This work would say, well, yes, that's called the pendulum. On one side, you have optimism. On the other side, you have depression. But it's only in the middle when your whole brain is working properly, when all of the clusters are working properly together, that you have something between optimism and depression. And it's called reality. Well, we don't know anything about that because we swing on this pendulum constantly. So we have to be told about reality. We have to be told there is such a thing as reality apart from our perceptions. Because all of this optimism and depression really is a matter of perception. It's a matter of how you perceive the world. We know, the work says, that some people have a very large negative target and some people have a very large positive target. In other words, impressions come in and one will have a little pie tin that's negative but a trash can lid that's positive. And they're like, they're dish antennas. So imagine a dish antenna the size of a pie tin and a dish antenna the size of a trash can lid. And one positive, one negative. And it's, the impressions are coming in, but where they land, you collect more positive and fewer negative or more negative and fewer positive depending upon your dish antenna, your trash can lid, or your pie tin. So it's the same thing. But the interesting thing is it's all mechanical. It's all chemical in the brain. The brain triggers optimism or depression, chemically based optimism or depression, and it's based on acquired associations. So we learn these patterns from the time of birth. We begin to learn these patterns from the people around us. We're born into a world of sleeping people, and we learn how to sleep from the people around us teaching us 24-7 how to sleep. 
and what to do while we're asleep. And so all these acquired patterns become, you'll notice that depression runs in a family and they say, oh, well, it's chemical. Yes, it is chemical. It's chemical not because the chemistry is stimulating the depression, but because the chemistry is based on acquired associations. And once those associations are acquired, it stimulates the chemistry, stimulates that part of the brain, and then you're depressed or you're optimistic. Of course, we have it just the opposite way. We have it all turned around. Rarely, we may experience a momentary trace of real eye in cases of extreme fatigue, war, when suddenly an access of force comes, or you've heard about the stories about how a mother will be in an automobile accident and she'll open a door or lift up a car or do something, get her child out, just some superhuman feat. And that would be impossible under, under any other circumstances. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about rarely we may experience a momentary trace of real eye in cases of extreme fatigue, war, when suddenly an access of force comes. We're in great danger and other strange ways not easily classified. We don't know how this happens all the time. But we know that every once in a while, very rare, but every once in a while, we get a momentary trace, a taste, just a whiff of real eye. The rest of our lives are passed immersed in sleep, where we identify with everything outside and inside us. But this rare momentary trace of real eye, and then the rest of our lives just this complete sleep, where we're totally identified with everything outside of us and everything inside of us. A thought comes up, we're totally identified. A feeling comes up, we're completely identified with it. Someone comes in the room, we completely identify with them. It's that person, we hate them. It's that person, we love them. We take absolutely nothing into consideration about the person, about the moment. It's all based on what we've acquired because we're asleep. Why? In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, it says, For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. Who is this Lord? What Lord, you may ask? What Lord poured over me a spirit of deep sleep? In esoteric teachings, nothing is ever really the way it seems. If someone's talking about a vineyard, they're not talking about growing grapes. They're not talking about a piece of earth. They're not talking about plants. They're talking about something internal. When they talk about the Lord, they're not talking about some overlord that has control over you. They're talking about the law. Lord means law. And the law has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. What law? Nature has a use for us. You realize that. Nature has a use for us. The same way that nature has a use for grass, for trees. Nature has a use for rabbits, for coyotes. Nature has a use for everything in nature. Everything that goes to make up this organic film that coats this planet has a use under the law of nature. But in order for you to be used by nature, that law has to pour over you a spirit of deep sleep. So when Isaiah said this or wrote this, what he was saying is, look, the whole earth, all of the people on the earth are asleep. There's this spirit of deep sleep that's been poured over people on the earth by the law of nature. And people misunderstood that. And so they read that. They don't read that now. That makes perfect sense. You look at how nature works. You look at the fact that you cannot be used for nature's purposes if you're awake. You no longer operate under nature's laws. Some people wake up just a little bit and they stop killing other people. What, what an amazing thing. Imagine a human being that doesn't kill. You don't even know any. I mean, okay, maybe you know a couple. But you don't know many people who don't kill. They kill something. They have to kill something because of who they think they are. Because they think that they are the crown of creation. They think they're so wonderful. They think they're so much better, so much superior than all other life forms that they feel that they have the right to kill whatever they want, whenever they want, to dominate whatever they want. That that's their right as superior beings. This is sleep. It's a condition of sleep because only in sleep can you imagine that you're something that you're not. 
If you're awake, you don't imagine that you're something that you're not. When you're awake, you see your nothingness. When you're awake, you see your powerlessness. When you're awake, you see that you don't have the ability to do. It's only in our sleep that these dreams, these nightmares occur. Also, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 15, it says, The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. To heal means to make whole. When you can't see with your eyes, you're not whole. When you can't hear with your ears, you're not whole. When you can't understand with your heart, you're not whole. If you could return to your source, you could become whole. That's really what this work is about. Getting us to return to our source. Getting us to come to grips with, to come in contact with, to make a reality, to draw closer to real eye until we can actually realize real eye. All we can do is talk about this theoretically right now because it's a far-off goal for us. But it still needs to be talked about because we need to know in which direction it lies. And we need to know in which direction seeing less and hearing less lies. We need to understand that so that we can have an idea of which direction we want to travel in, which direction we want to move in, which direction we want to face. I've said to you many times, if you hate somebody, if you have a problem with somebody, of course, we don't say hate. We like to change the words so that we seem much more noble than we actually are. This is all part of the sleep, all part of the illusion. We change the words because we think by changing the words, that actually changes the thing. For example, we change words. What, what do they call war now? Conflict, blah, 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 blah. What do they call murder? Well, it's just a police action. You know, well, it's just a conflict. Well, it's just this or it's just that. It's murder. People murdering other people. Well, but it's for their own good. Yes, we're murdering them for their own good. What has changed? People have been doing this since they first picked up a rock or a bone and cracked somebody else's skull because he took more of whatever the other one wanted than this one thought he should. And so he cracked his skull open for it. And it's been going on ever since. And we've just changed the names. Before we had no name for it. And then we made a name for it. And then the names changed and changed and changed until it's this sanitized thing. That it's no longer this bloody murder. It's now this sanitized thing. Now you have video games where you can murder hundreds of people in a sanitized way. It promotes all of this violence and hate. All of this separation and ego stuff, false personality stuff that I've got to have dominion over you. Nature has a use for us, and its laws govern our sleeping lives. Nicole said, We're born asleep into a world of sleeping people who are kept asleep and spend their time in killing one another. Think of an entity that consumes suffering as food energy. You realize that when you suffer, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to suffer. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to suffer. Anyone who's ever been in pain knows that a nagging pain will really wear you down. A toothache can really wear you down. Your nerves will be on edge. You will get very snippy and snotty with people. You bite when they come near you. you get away. I don't want to be around anybody. Why don't you want to be around anybody? People irritate me. Everything's irritating me. It's because it draws so much of our force. So suffering is an energy. 
a force and is drawing force off of us. Now, imagine an entity in this universe that consumes that suffering energy as a food source. And you get a picture of humanity being farmed like we raise beef. And so what does it matter to the great law of nature, whether a whole species goes extinct or not? It doesn't matter. In the big scheme of things, it keeps on going. It adapts. It simply adapts one way or another. Something else fills that space. Somebody brought snails to California because they wanted to have escargot. And because there was no natural enemy here for snails, now we have a plague of snails. And we're poisoning the earth and all the other insects to try and get rid of the snails. Because somebody brought snails here without bringing their natural enemy to keep them in check. Because nature has a way of keeping things in check, keeping things in balance. So now we are the natural enemy of snails. Now we go around stepping on them and poisoning them and killing them, doing whatever we do to try and keep the snails down, the snail population down. And that's just all we're doing, that in our sleep, nature's law, making us do this in our sleep. Esoteric teachings aim at leading a man on a journey of awakening from sleep, which can end in being born again. When it talks about being born again, it talks about being born awake, coming out of this stupor, this sleep that we're in now, and being born into reality, being born into a world of light, a world of consciousness. Think of being born awake among people, awakening, and working on unifying their being under one real eye. Think about being born into a group of people where everyone was working on coming under real eye, their own real eye. Think of that. Think of then you working on that realization, unification of your being under the direction of real eye, so that your mind really was never set in motion by anything except the will of real eye. Think of the difference between how your mind is set in motion now and what it would be like to have your mind not set in motion by anything except real eye. Think of being born into a world where everyone was like that. That would be born again, wouldn't it? And that's what this is talking about. This isn't possible for everyone, but it may be for certain individuals. We're talking first fruits, what we're talking about. The first fruits always fetch the best price because they're the first fruits. They're the first to ripen. There may be a whole tree full of green fruit or unripe fruit, but then in a certain season, there'll be fruits that ripen first. And those are picked before all the other ones ripen. And they're sent to market and they fetch the highest price because people have been waiting for them and they're willing to pay for them. But then when the whole crop comes in, the price goes down. So essentially, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a kind of a first fruits of people. Perhaps someday, much of the fruit on the tree will ripen. But right now, only a few can. Why? I don't know. I don't understand that whole thing. I have some theories and some ideas, but what does it matter? The fact is, is that some fruit ripens before the other fruit. That's just the way it is. And for some reason, people ripen before other people. And that's just the way that is. There are people who are not the least bit interested in this. And that would be most people. You have to see that most people in the world are like the fruit on the tree that is not ripe. What are some of the indications of unripe fruit? Well, it's hard and it's bitter or sour. And look at the world. The world is hard and it can be very bitter and very sour. But if you look at the people who ripened, the great masters, the great teachers who ripened, they were not bitter, hard, and sour. They were soft, they were sweet, they were fragrant, they were beautiful because they were ripe. And so there are people who can, who have the ability to ripen sooner. What is it in us that starts this journey, that wants to awaken? What is that? Eyes with the most understanding. Eyes with the most understanding get together and they say, let's go for it, let's do this. Not all our eyes are at the same level. There are eyes in you, there are fragmented parts of your personality that are so negative, so dark, 
so nasty, so murderous, so treacherous that you don't even want to know they exist. It's one of the big problems we have with self-observation. We don't even want to see them. We don't even want to acknowledge that they are part of us, which is exactly what fragments us. The fact that we're willing to divorce ourselves from them, to push them away from us, that is what makes them what they are where they have a place. It's just that when they're out of place, they become treacherous. When they're in place, they're just small eyes that don't understand. But if they can be directed, properly directed, if they could all come into the will of one real eye and be properly directed, they would take their right place and things would be fine. We'd function properly. But because we don't have that, you have one eye who gets to be boss for a couple of minutes and he beats the crap out of all the other little eyes. No, you can't do this. You can't have that. And pushes them away. And, and then, of course, their response is negative. So it's a big problem. Some eyes are mean, stupid, envious, and vengeful. Some eyes are bigger, understanding more. When these better eyes begin to hear and obey, they gather around the observing eye because they wish to understand more. These eyes are on a higher level than the eyes that deal with ordinary life. And this is the beginning of raising our level of being. We start to identify more with the eyes that are on a higher level. And when we identify more with the eyes that are on a higher level, we have our sense of self on a higher level of our being, of our own being. It doesn't mean that the other part of the being isn't there. It just means that as we move our sense of self to a higher level inside of ourselves, we manifest a higher level of being. When you used to steal... You may say, well, I never stole. Well, when you used to steal, let's just, let's not get into that. When you used to steal more than you do now, like, okay, so, well, I never shoplifted. No, maybe you never shoplifted, but maybe you just borrowed a postage stamp or an envelope or a piece of paper from work. Or maybe you just took something that was somebody else's because they weren't really going to use it and they didn't really need it. And they would have let you have it if you asked them. Or maybe you just took credit for something you didn't do. Maybe you just stole credit. Maybe you just stole what belonged to someone else. Maybe someone else deserved the credit for that, but you took it instead. You stole. So when you used to steal more than you do now, those were smaller eyes that didn't understand. But now that you've heard these things, you'll think twice before you steal. You'll think twice before, maybe you'll think twice before you take credit for something you didn't do. Maybe. But you would have to be awake. That part of you would have to be awake to see that, to be able to see, oh, that's stealing, taking credit for something I didn't do is stealing. If you were awake, if you were in a better eye that could see that, that understood that, you wouldn't do it, would you? That's my point. That's the beginning of raising our level of being. The work calls a collection of eyes forming around observing eye deputy steward. So the eyes that collect and form around observing eye that wish to go on this journey, they then become what the work calls deputy steward. As far as I can tell, this is an arbitrary name. I don't know what it matters, but there it is. It's a level. It's a degree. It's a stage. Let's call it a stage of development. And if they're strong enough to persist and fight the negative and disbelieving eyes that attack them, the stage called steward may be reached from there. So first these eyes begin to gather around observing eye. And when they do, they coalesce, they coagulate, they begin to form a group. It's a stage that we reach in our development. And that stage the work calls deputy steward. Then that stage is attacked by the world, attacked by all of the eyes that don't want that, that don't understand that, that would rather have their way, that think, no, if you do that, you can't give, you can't just let that person take that. If you let that person take that, you won't have it. Those little eyes win out. And those little eyes attack that state, that understanding that wishes to do something higher, but the little eyes say no. It wishes not to respond unkindly or negatively toward a person who has been ignorant to you. But the little eyes get your mouth and the next thing you know, you snap back. You're a smart aleck. You come back with some snappy response or you put them down or you take a jab at them or you hurt them in some way. In other words, you're violent. You respond with violence. And the observing eyes, the deputy steward didn't win out. 
then it can be, if it doesn't form and become strong and be fed and be nourished with these work ideas, it will diminish and you will go back to where you were, which is deep sleep. But if you can persist and fight the negative and disbelieving eyes that attack, then you could possibly reach the stage called steward. This is the order of ascent to real I. You've got to climb willingly. You won't if you perceive yourself coerced. Resentment, resistance, and opposition will alter your course every time. If you allow resentment, resistance, and opposition, if you allow those eyes to have a place in you, if you allow them to work on deputy steward or steward, whatever, whatever stage you're in, they will alter your course. You must want it because we're self-developing, so we must try to observe and study history of the different eyes in ourselves. You've got to want to develop, and the only way people want to develop is if they suffer. If your life is fine and there's no suffering in your life, you don't want to develop. You want to just enjoy your wonderful life. But it's when it hits the fan that we then wish to develop. We wish to get into a state where that no longer affects us, where that no longer torments us, where that no longer tortures us and drains our energy and keeps us negative and violent and hateful or depressed or whatever you want to call it. So we've got to try to observe. We've got to try to study our history. We've got to try to study the history of our different eyes, the different eyes in us, the different fragmented bits of our personality. Consider writing your own biography, not an autobiography, but consider writing your own biography. Now think about what I've said, not an autobiography. An autobiography is you write your own story. No, I want you to think about writing a biography. That is someone else who writes about you. So you look at your life from someone else's point of view and you lay it out the way someone else would. Your autobiography is going to come out a certain way. You're going to look really good. No matter what happened, you're going to come out all shiny and nice and peachy keen. But a biography, a biographer doesn't necessarily do that, especially if the person's dead. The person he's writing about is dead. Of course, today you have to have lawyers to make sure that the family doesn't sue you for telling the truth. But you get the idea. That's all I want is you to have the idea. You're not really writing about one eye moving through time. But you're writing about a history of different eyes at different levels at different times. You see that when we write an autobiography, we think of ourselves as one person moving through time. Well, when I was in first grade, I did this. When I was in second grade, I did this. When I was in third grade, this happened. That's just one person, one eye moving through time. But we're not one eye. If we could actually see the different eyes that came out at different times, we would begin to see a pattern. And if we could see that pattern and write that pattern down, we would have power. Because what can be named can be controlled. Though we have no power to make ourselves happy, we do have a very great power to separate from unhappy states when we understand self-observation and non-identifying. You can't make yourself happy. But you do have a great power to separate from the unhappy states, those eyes that make your life miserable. You do have the power to separate from them. But it's only when you really understand and practice self-observation and non-identifying. That is what this work is about. That is our quandary. How do we do that in a world gone insane? Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application, in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.